All right, good morning, everyone. If you are new this morning, my name is Sean Mortensen. I'm one of the elders here at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, In a moment here, we're going to jump into our study in the book of Romans again, Romans 11 being our text for today. So if you want, you can turn there now and get ready for that. Uh, Before we do, I have one announcement for us, and it's an exciting one, so I'm glad I get to share it with you. The stated mission of Redemption Church is that we exist to birth and strengthen healthy local congregations. And if you've been around Redemption for any length of time, you've seen this happen. As the existing congregations uh, raise up and train new leaders and and get stronger and grow, uh, and as new congregations are planted or folded into the Redemption family. um, Currently, there are seven Redemption congregations, Arcadia being one of them. And I'm excited to announce this morning that very soon there will be eight redemption congregations. And uh, yes, and uh, you know, we, we took time uh, weighing our options, trying to figure out where should we go, where is there a need, where is there a good fit. Um, really took our time to think about it. And you know, in the end, it became very clear that we need to go back to Cleveland. That's where we're going. Um, we're going home. We're going to go earn it in Northeast Ohio. Uh, just kidding, of course. Who would go to Cleveland? Um, hey, sorry, Cleveland people. Um, so, no, actually, the, the next Redemption congregation will be Redemption Tucson, uh, which is very exciting for me. Um, this is the point uh, in the announcements taking place Redemption-wide where Redemption pastors uh, recycle their old, tired Tucson jokes that they've been milking for years. Uh, you know, you've, you've heard them. Uh, you will hear no such foolishness from me this morning because I am a wildcat. And I, yes, yeah, oh, 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 all right. Um, but I, I have love for Tucson. Uh, I'd have EGs here this morning to celebrate if I could. Uh, maybe I can figure out a way next week. Um, but very excited. Uh, I, I've seen the need in Tucson for a long time, and others saw that need as well. And I really, truly believe something's happening there, and there's really uh, some pretty great movement for the gospel in that city. So really excited to announce that this morning. Um, It's being led by a guy named Dave Goffney, who I actually went to school with at U of A. And another fun fact, his wife Kira is a childhood friend of my wife. So it's kind of exciting for us on a number of levels. Dave and Kira have four kids, three of which are triplets. So uh, they've been through the fire, you guys. They are, they are battle-tested. Uh, they are ready for whatever church planting comes, puts their way. So um, Dave and Kira Goffney. Dave is just a, an awesome, awesome guy, just tenacious for the gospel, um, just a, a guy of really high integrity. Um, he's the type of leader that not, doesn't just draw a crowd but makes disciples, if you understand the distinction that I'm making there. Just a great, great leader. Um, The plant in Tucson actually uh, has been going for a little while. Dave and his family moved from California to Tucson in fall of 2013 and and started this church plant independently. Uh, And as Dave came and started this church plant, he formed a relationship with Redemption Church uh, through a number of means, through the surge training that we're a part of, uh, to the point where he uh, ultimately got brought on as a pastoral resident with Redemption Church. And in that process, as Redemption pastors and leaders got to know Dave and his family and his heart, uh, and as Dave made his desire to be connected to Redemption known more and more, uh, it just became obvious that it was a good fit. And so earlier this year, uh, the pastors of the leadership team of Redemption Church voted to make that plant in Tucson, which had already uh, gotten underway, a Redemption Church plant in Tucson. And it's in the early stages still. 
about 60 adults, 20 kids or so, uh, meeting mostly in kind of small group format. Uh, I think they're doing a worship gathering once a month, looking to start weekly worship gatherings in September. They're located in the downtown Tucson area, which if you know the city is uh, right pretty much adjacent to the university there, between the university and the freeway. Uh, So they're going to be located there, early stages. Um, Man, be praying for them. Uh, You're going to hear more about this. If you would like to support them financially, you can do so through the Redemption Church website. Um, If you've done that before, you go to the website uh, and click on giving, and you can actually choose uh, Tucson General Fund as one of the options to give to them now. So we're really excited about that. Love to have the the Goffneys on board. Um, It's going to be a cool thing. We're going to be celebrating with them for a long time. So Redemption Tucson, we're excited about that this morning. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into our study in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up there now. Uh, scroll to it on your app, whatever you need to do. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, so it'll be good to be able to kind of follow along as we go. So, uh, as we've studied the book of Romans, uh, we've realized that Paul is writing this letter to a, a mixed audience in the city of Rome, right? A mixed audience of Christians, some of whom are uh, Jewish Christians and some of whom are Gentile Christians, Gentile being of non-Jewish descent. And he's writing this uh, not 20 to 25 years after the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so not very long. And um, most of these new believers, they would all pretty much be new believers, that are in Rome either probably received it firsthand. Maybe they were in Jerusalem. Maybe they were even there at Pentecost and received the faith there and then went on to Rome. Or they've received it uh, through oral tradition. Someone explained the gospel to them, gave them the basics, maybe when they were in Rome already. So all of them are sort of new believers. All of them sort of need um, more theological underpinning, right? And, and we forget sometimes that these, these early Christians, they didn't have in their hands the Bible that you have in your hands right now. Okay, they, they didn't have something to refer to to kind of work through the theological nuances. The Bible that you have, the New Testament, was being written among them to answer the questions that they had. So that's what the book of Romans is. The book of Romans is Paul uh, working with the people in Rome, uh, understanding the questions that they have, writing a, a theological treatise, in a sense, to help answer their questions, to help give them more theological underpinning, to help them see the big picture, and then address some very specific things that are happening in that community as well. Uh, one of the interesting things that Paul's commenting on, one of the, and it's sort of a new paradigm that Paul has to address, is this Jewish-Gentile relationship. And Paul is really kind of in the thick of that and in the head of that conversation. Um, particularly this idea that now the gospel, the saving work of God, has now gone outside of Israel to the Gentiles and is at work among the Gentiles. And, and the reason that this is particularly challenging or creates an interesting tension is that the people of Israel um, understood their own identity, their national identity, their personal identity as the people of Yahweh. They understood that relationship to be a privileged relationship. Uh, they, they understood it to, they were exclusively favored um, because they were born out of the promises of God. They were born out of the patriarchs. They were born out of the Exodus. They weren't a nation. They were formed as a nation because of the redemptive work of God. And so that was their collective identity. Um, I would argue that their understanding of being exclusive in the sense that Yahweh was theirs and no one else's was an incomplete understanding of their relationship. Because as we saw in the last study that we did, this last little section on God's faithfulness, um, God chose Israel to be a light to the nations. God has always had the nations in view. And so it's incomplete to understand their privileged relationship as Yahweh is theirs and theirs alone. 
But it is part of their national identity, right? It's, it's how they understand themselves, to be the people of Yahweh, and that relationship would be privileged. But now, the gospel has jumped the banks of Israel. It's exploded beyond the borders of Israel, and it's flooding into the rest of the world, the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. And you can understand why this would create all sorts of tension, right? Um, the levy broke. The gospel is going out. And because the gospel is the power of salvation, people were being saved. And people's lives were being transformed. All the while, Israel is largely rejecting God's present work. It's largely rejecting Jesus. So God's power is on display outside. God's power is at work among the Gentiles. Meanwhile, at home, the Jews are rejecting what God is doing. And this tension you can see uh, building and building and building in Paul's letter. And you can see it actually throughout all of his letters, but it, it continues to build in Romans. And it kind of comes to a head at the end of chapter 10, which is what we studied last week, uh, where he quotes, Paul quotes Isaiah saying this, speaking of the Gentiles, this is God speaking of the Gentiles in the prophet Isaiah. And Paul uh, appropriates this to make his point. I have been found by those who, I did, not, who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So this is God saying, there's the Gentiles outside of Israel. I've been at work among Israel. I've been showing my power. I've been redeeming them. I've been saving them. I've been transforming them. Meanwhile, there's the Gentile world outside that didn't seek me, wasn't asking for me. Now I've been found by them. Now I've revealed myself to them, and I'm at work among them. And he contrasts this with Israel. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. We just did a um, sort of smaller series that I just mentioned on God's faithfulness where we did basically a a survey of Israel's relationship to God in the Old Testament and how that relationship worked and basically God's faithfulness towards Israel throughout all of that. And the truth is, if if you were a part of that series and, and you were with us at every step, you'd realize this statement by Isaiah, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people, sadly, might serve as a summary of the plot of that narrative in the Old Testament. God calling his people, God redeeming his people, rescuing them from slavery, continuing to bless them, and they continually reject him. They continually fail to trust in him. They continually walk away from him. And so here we are, Israel now rejecting. And the Gentiles coming to faith. And God's saving power, which so uh, mightily worked in Israel in their history, which they staked their identity on, is now on display outside of their borders. Now on display among the Gentiles. And it might seem, if you were a part of Israel at the time, it might seem like perhaps God's favor had shifted. At least you would have that question, right? As Paul continues to articulate, the gospel is going to the ends of the earth, and you see the power of God for salvation at work, and you see people's lives being transformed among the Gentile world. Well, at home, at Israel, it seemed perhaps he wasn't working, or it seemed vacant, or they didn't see it on display as much. And they would ask the question, has God's power shifted? Has, has, has his favor shifted? And it leads to all these questions. Is Israel being replaced? Is Israel being forgotten? Did God finally and forever wash his hands of them? Was he so fed up after years and years and years of them turning aside that he decided, I'm done. I'm going to wash my hands of you. Is that what's happening here? Is Israel being replaced? 
And this is exactly the question that Paul anticipates. In Romans 11.1, he says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, he says. Paul's classic statement. Let it never be. Never say so. Of course not. Has God rejected his people? Of course not. And he, he pulls upon two kind of examples to prove his point, that God has not rejected Israel. One of the examples he uses to make his point is he appeals to the story of the prophet Elijah, okay? Uh, mainly in 1 Kings, the story of the prophet Elijah, and, and what he's going to reference here is from 1 Kings 19. You can look that up later if you like. It's just this brilliant, beautiful story. But basically in this story, the prophet Elijah, not unlike Paul, is preaching salvation in God, calling people back to God to trust in him. And the people aren't listening. And the people are rejecting God. And Elijah, not unlike Paul, is now on the run for his life. People are after him. And he fears that he's going to be killed. And so he feels alone. He feels like there's no one in all of the nation of Israel that's faithful. And he feels like this is all coming to an end. This is all crashing and burning. I'm maybe the last, am I the last one? And they're trying to kill me. And so Paul quotes this, Romans 11, 3 through 6. This is quoting Elijah, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? This is Paul saying, what is God's reply to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now Paul saying, so too at the present time, Paul's time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. God's response to Elijah, who says, God, I'm on the run here. There's no one left. No one is faithful. All of Israel has fallen away from you. I'm the last one, and they're going to kill me. And God's response to Elijah is, you're not the last one. You're not the last one. I've kept for myself 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, which is the false god of the area of the times. He says, I've kept 7,000 who have not worshipped this false god. They're mine. And Paul says, so it is in our time. I feel like I'm the last one. I feel like all of Israel is rejecting God, but it's not true. I'm not the only one. There are some out there. God has kept for himself a remnant, and it is by grace. It is by God's grace always by grace. Paul always goes back to it. So the short answer to the question, has God rejected his people? By no means. The short answer is, despite their repeated failures, despite the fact that God's saving power is presently on display among the Gentiles, God has not wholesale rejected his people. He has not wholesale rejected the nation of Israel, despite their failures. And I would suggest that this should be intensely reassuring for us about the nature of God's character. And I was thinking about this this last week, and, and I think that all of us can uh, relate to the experience where we are extending grace, and we're extending patience, and we're trying to love someone, and we do so for a while, and then our grace runs out. And our patience runs out. Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're patient, you're patient, you're patient, you're patient, and then enough! Enough. I'm done. 
And then your grace and your patience turn to spite and frustration. I think all of us can relate to what that feels like. And in our human weakness, that's a common reality for us. But the truth is, I I think that we oftentimes project that and things like that upon God and say, this is my experience. This is how I operate. This is my weakness. God must be the same. He must work in the same way. And we think perhaps that God, like us, has moments where he's extending grace to us and extending grace, and then he's going to get to the point where he just says, enough, I'm done. And wash my hands of you. But may I suggest, God is not so fickle that his grace is dependent upon a fragile emotional state like us. God doesn't wash his hands of his people because he didn't get enough sleep the night before, like us, right? But it's hard for us to remember this. Do you ever find yourself in the place where you are engaged in sin and you come to that moment where you think, surely, surely now I've crossed the point of no return. Surely now he will wash his hands of me. Surely now I've abused his grace One too many times. You ever get to that point? Surely now that I'm in this sin again, that I fell for this again, surely now he's so frustrated that he's done with me forever. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever fear that? God's not so fickle that his grace and his saving plan is contingent upon a fragile emotional state. God's promises are secure. And the reason is God's not surprised by our sin. God's not surprised. He's not taken off guard by our sin. Of course, he is grieved by our sin, by injustice, by pain. Everything that's a distortion of his good creation in the world, he's grieved by it. He hates it. He hates sin. And he wants sin out of your life, but he's not taken off guard by your sin. He does not throw off his plans or his promises. And we'll see that even Israel's hardness, even Israel's sin and rejection of him is part of his plan. He's not taken off guard by it. He's not responding in a sort of fragile, emotional way. God doesn't regret choosing you because he's learning how much of a project you are, right? (laughs) He knew you were a project. God knew your sin before he chose you to receive salvation. He knew your sin, past, present, future before he chose you to receive salvation. And he still called you. That's that's not a platitude. That's real. Let, Let that sink in this morning. Let that wash over you this morning. That the God who called you to receive salvation knew your sin, knew every corner of your sin, not just past sin, but present, future sin as well. And he still called you. And he still loves you. And we as fragile human beings, as weak human beings, fallen human beings, we may have a breaking point. Our grace might have an expiration date, so to speak. We may, we may run out, but the truth is that God's grace covers all. We just sang multiple songs. We just sang about endless love and amazing grace. We just sang that Jesus paid it all, all, right? We just sang those words. And God may discipline those he loves to get sin out of our lives. 
And of course he wants us to get sin out of our lives. But the death and resurrection of Jesus is sufficient to cover all of our sin. And because of Jesus Christ, here's the good news. Because of Jesus Christ, failure is not final for those that are found in him. Because of Jesus Christ, failure is not final. Because of the grace that we have in him. Past failure, present failure, future and repeated failure. Jesus paid it all. Do you believe that this morning? you believe that? Well, there's a further proof that Paul gives, and it's an obvious one, as to why God, why it's obvious that God has not rejected his people. And his point is simply this. Paul says, I'm a Jew, and I'm standing here proclaiming the gospel. Paul presents himself as a sort of poster child of the Jew in need of grace, right? Elsewhere, he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's got the credentials. If anyone is Jewish, if anyone represents the nation of Israel, it's him. And if you know Paul's story, not only is he a Hebrew of Hebrews, and not only did he originally reject Jesus as Savior, he led a militant charge to condemn everybody who would follow Jesus. Paul's holding people's coats while new followers of Jesus are being killed. And so Paul presents himself. You want proof? I'm here. And we have this statement of Paul in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in time, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. You want proof that God does not give up on sinners and has not given up on the Jews? Exhibit A, Paul presents himself. So, what does this mean then? If God has not given up on his people, if God has not rejected Israel, what does this mean? Does this mean that all ethnic Jews are saved? Does this mean that the nation of Israel is automatically grandfathered in because of their heritage? The answer is no. And Paul articulates this, the answer to that, both here and really elsewhere. Letter to the Galatians elsewhere. And it's here that we, we need to get a little bit more nuanced in our study, but I think it's important to understand how God is working in history. And see, what Paul does, he touches on a theme that's found in a lot of his letters, and it's this theme of a distinction between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. Okay. Paul makes this distinction, ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. Ethnic Israel would be exactly what it sounds like. People of a certain lineage, people of a certain heritage, a certain race. Spiritual Israel would be genuine believers, the elect from all of history, whether they are of ethnic Israel or not. And sometimes we use a term like the people of God to describe spiritual Israel. So Paul's making a distinction here and saying that being a part of ethnic Israel does not necessarily mean that you are a part of spiritual Israel. You tracking with that? Being a part of ethnic Israel does not necessarily mean that you are a part of spiritual Israel. You can see why Paul was super popular among his peers in that time, right? Challenging the very understanding of what it means to be God's people. You can be a part of ethnic Israel, but not necessarily a part of spiritual Israel. We've already studied this in part. Romans 9, we got this statement, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise as counted offspring. Again, Paul saying it's never been as mechanical as sort of passing it down through genes, okay? Through race and lineage. That has never been the currency. That has never been the economy of God's grace. It has always been a promise. It has always been the people of the promise who receive his grace, whether they have ethnic Israel or not. And again, we get this statement then, in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You can imagine how controversial a statement like that is in Paul's day. As the Jews hear Paul saying something like that. If you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So there's a divide in ethnic Israel that Paul's exposing here between the elect and the rest, those that are saved and those that are not. And we get this statement in Romans eleven seven. What then? Israel has failed to obtain what it was seeking. Broadly speaking, the nation of Israel, broadly speaking, failed to obtain what it was seeking. And then he sort of qualifies his statement. He sort of clarifies. But the elect obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Israel broadly failed to obtain what, is, what it was seeking. Then he qualifies The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. He exposes a divide in ethnic Israel. The elect and the rest. And here's how this works. Here's how we need to understand it. There is one plan of God for the salvation of the world. There's one plan of God for the salvation of the world. And there is one Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And those who came before Jesus displayed a faith that was in anticipation of God's mighty works that would save them. Not knowing exactly who Jesus was, those that came before him displayed a faith and a trust in God that God would be their savior and he would act and he would bring salvation according to his purposes and according to his means. And they gave their heart to God and they followed him and they worshiped him in all of life. And then the people who come during Jesus' life and after Jesus' life are forced to reconcile who Jesus is. See, everything that came before, the temples, the sacrifice, the law, all of that was pointing to the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ arrives and he's not quite the savior that a lot of people had in mind, which is why a lot of people have rejected him. He's not quite what they were expecting. But when he arrives, everyone is forced to deal with this question that Jesus puts forth. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's a question that the Jews of the time had to answer. It's a question that we had to answer. It's a question that everyone of all time has to answer. Everyone must face account for this question. Jesus asking, who do you say that I am? And people were forced to choose. Who do you say I am? They either reject him or they accept him. And there's no third option. And so, keeping this in mind then, 
Even hearing some of the language that Jesus uses, if we go back and read the gospel, starts to make a little bit more sense. Sometimes Jesus will make a statement like this. He says in, in Matthew 10, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? Are you coming to bring division? Are you coming to bring conflict? Of course not. We understand that Jesus came to bring reconciliation. We understand that Jesus came to bring peace. But what happens is when he comes on the scene, he comes and people must react to him. And people must either accept or reject him. And even within households, there would be division, as some accept and some reject. And in Paul's day, the vast majority of Jews were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Rejecting him. The only name under heaven by which we can be saved. If you remember uh, earlier in our study of the book of Romans, Um, Just Paul's personal anguish over this reality. Saying, I myself would be cut off from salvation, from relationship with God, for the sake of my Jewish brothers and sisters who are now lost. I I would cut myself off because I'm in such desperation over them. And Paul is tormented over the thought of his fellow Jews who found their identity as Yahweh's people now stumbling over Jesus and missing out on the blessing of God. Torments him. But then at the end of chapter 11, Paul hints at something that he calls a mystery. 11.25. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. As you might imagine, there's uh, no shortage of debate over what exactly Paul means here. What does he mean when he says all Israel will be saved in light of everything we just talked about? Well, he probably does not mean that all ethnic Israel will be saved, that all ethnic Jews will be saved. And the reason is it seems to conflict his earlier points, right? His personal anguish over ethnic Jews not being saved would make no sense if two chapters later he was going to say, but it's cool, all ethnic Jews are going to be saved. And so as we take the full counsel, we understand that cannot be what he's saying because it's contradicting his point that he made not long before this. And he's probably not saying that all spiritual Israel will be saved because that's not really a mystery, is it? If by definition spiritual Israel is people who are chosen to be saved to say, here's a mystery. People who are chosen to be saved are going to be saved. That kind of goes without saying, right? So he's probably not saying that. The most likely interpretation, given all of the factors involved, is that Paul is saying, at some point in the future, God will do a work where a large portion, if not all, of ethnic Israel at the time will come to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That seems to be the most likely interpretation of what Paul's saying here. Particularly because what Paul outlines in this chapter is this sort of grand movement from, of the gospel, of the gospel having its roots in Israel, going outside of Israel to the Gentiles, and coming back to Israel. Starting in Israel, going out to the ends of the earth to the Gentiles, and then coming back to Israel. Um, this is the plot unfolding. We see it here. So I asked, did they stumble? Did Israel stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. 
Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Like I said, this is the plan of God unfolding. The hardness of Israel has caused the gospel message to go outside of Israel to the ends of the earth. And people take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and it's changing lives. It is the power of God for salvation. And the salvation and blessing of the Gentiles serves as a witness to Israel, making them jealous. So the gospel goes out, and the power of God is on display to all the nations of the earth. Unbelieving Israel looks on and becomes jealous. And of course, we need to be careful here um, when we talk about God using jealousy because, uh, you know, God is not a junior high girl, right? <laughs> it's, uh, this is not a petty jealousy we're talking about. This is, not, um, this is not pride and materialism that we usually associate with jealousy. Um, and we need to be careful because uh, we could go sideways here with this idea that our job as the church is to make the outside world jealous, okay? If we don't understand what's being talked about here, we could go sideways, and frankly, the church does go sideways. The prosperity gospel would love to jump off this passage and say, look, our job is to make people jealous. The best way to make the world jealous is to show them how much God is blessing us, and here's how God blesses people. He just gives them health, wealth, and prosperity, Right? And so we want to make the world jealous by showing off our things, showing off how much he wants to bless us, by buying our pastor a Land Rover. Well, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't prohibit that. So if you feel like, <laughs> like silver, surprise me, surprise me. Um, it, it's not this prosperity gospel, materialism, pride, jealousy that we want to evoke. Okay, we need to be careful about that. And it's not this petty jealousy, and, and it's not this... Um, sugary, faux-happy, I'm-a-winner, too-blessed-to-be-stressed persona that we want to put on to the world to make them jealous either, right? We're not trying to portray this superficial identity to a watching world to make them jealous about just how kind of sugary and peaceful our life is. No, this is, this is a deeper jealousy. This is a, this is a jealousy connected to people's deepest longings and personal identity. This is a jealousy of love lost, of hope lost, of paradise lost. And to a people in Israel who define themselves as the people of Yahweh, expecting God would bless them and them alone, understanding that they deserved Yahweh's blessing and no one else did, which was a false understanding to begin with but understanding their position as privileged to Yahweh, that he was theirs. As they look upon the blessings of God and the power of God for salvation, at work among the Gentiles, they would inevitably look on and say, wait, what, what happened here? What did we miss? And of course what they missed is Jesus. Of course what they missed is Jesus. I want to make two points here, and then I want to show you something. The mission of God is assumed in this passage, okay? It's in the back. He doesn't talk about it explicitly, but here's the reality. God is at work, and his plan is unfolding. The mission of God is assumed in this passage. I don't want us to lose sight of that. And the second thing is the missional identity of God's people, those who he calls to, 
to know him and be saved by him is also assumed in this passage. God's plan is unfolding. God's plan of redemption to restore his creation is at work, and he's calling his people to play a role in that. As he talks about the 